Welcome to Blues at the Crossroads, a podcast about blues and Americana music hosted by me, Gary Burnett. And by me, Gemma Burnett. You know my dad Gary from his blog, Down at the Crossroads, and his book, The Gospel According to the Blues. So every episode we're going to be reviewing new music and talking to some really exciting artists. On this episode we were really lucky to talk with Birds of Chicago's Alison Russell about her new project, Songs of Our Native Daughters. Songs of Our Native Daughters is a wonderful album. It's a stunning piece of work by four terrific women roots artists, Rhiannon Giddens, Alison Russell, Leila McCalla and Amethyst Kea. This episode we're going to be interviewing Alison Russell about her role in the project, uh, why she found it so important uh, as a piece of work And we have a really fantastically wide-ranging, extensive and at times moving discussion with her. But tell us a little bit about Alison. Alison Russell is one half of the Birds of Chicago, really fantastic uh, Americana uh, group. Uh, Alison performs with her husband, JT Nero. Um, This is a a separate project um, that she has got involved in uh, with uh, the driving force behind it, uh, Rhiannon Giddens. And thematically, the album explores the dark history of slavery, the ancestral history of these women, and the living legacy of that history today. Musically, it's American roots music, American folk music, with more than a hint of the blues in it, performed by four artists at the top of their game. Interestingly, all four are banjo players. Um, Banjo playing you might associate more with white country music. Musically, that makes us think about what constitutes American roots music and who performs it. It raises some interesting uh, questions of genre and inclusivity. And this was a new artist to me. I really enjoyed listening to the album. It's really, really powerful and fantastic. But I wanted to say at the top of our discussion, that we are two white people from the island of Ireland and we're going to be discussing what is a really powerful meditation on identity, on race and slavery and there's a sense in which we are listening to a conversation about a history that we can't directly access Hmm. and that doesn't mean that there's a lot to learn and a lot to connect with but it's about a history that isn't particularly ours. Okay, so you were thinking um, about the story recently with Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes, I gave you some homework to do over the weekend, which was to Google Billy Ray Cyrus and find out why he'd been in the news all of a sudden. And the reason he has been in the news is uh, he got involved with uh, a single that's been a huge hit since Christmas by a rapper called Lil Nas X, who released a song called Old Town Road. Uh, It entered as a smash hit onto the country charts, but was quickly removed by Billboard because they claimed that it wasn't country enough for them. This caused an awful lot of controversy, especially because Lil Nas X is black, and there was a question about how Billboard relates to race and genre. Hmm. But Billy Ray Cyrus got very excited about it, tweeted at him, when I got thrown off the charts, Waylon Jennings said to me, take this as a compliment, and it means you're doing something great. Only outlaws are outlawed. 
Welcome to the Club. Mm. So he jumped on the remix and made this massive hit even more massive. So I think there's a question at the back of our minds about how different genres maybe exclude certain people. And it struck me that an example of this was a few years ago at the CMAs in 2016, Beyonce performed her big smash daddy lessons with the Dixie Chicks, which made a lot of people extremely annoyed. Yeah, I've been listening to uh, the uh, Lil Nas X song and it seems to me there's plenty of country in it. I don't really understand why um, they have decided to exclude it on the grounds of there not being enough country. And I think it makes Billboard as an institution seem very behind the times. And if young people, this rapper is 19, 20 years old, if young people are accessing this sort of music and enjoying it, it seems ridiculous that they're being excluded. So yeah, I mean, I was thinking about uh, Sturgill Simpson's album from a couple of years ago, which he won a Grammy with. And he really fuses elements of soul and country music. And that seemed to be acceptable enough. But is it not acceptable to um, fuse a little bit of rap in with, with country? I think that genres are really fluid and there's no point in having such strict um, ideas about who, who can and can't participate. And I think that was something that was really at the back of Rhiannon Giddens' mind when she was conceiving of this project um, and the history of how... Um, black people have been involved in the very beginnings of country music in the very first uh, track on the album black myself they sing i pick the banjo up and they stare at me because i'm black myself and i think there's a really important way in which they are re-examining the history of country and folk music to find their own stories in that The banjo is an instrument that all four of the women on this album play. Uh, they're all top-class banjo players. Ren and Giddens, of course, has won uh, the prestigious Steve Martin Award for banjo playing. The banjo we associate with bluegrass, white bluegrass music and country music, uh, but actually, of course, it was really a slave instrument. And um, she has said that, uh, Rhiannon Giddens has said that she wants to put the black back into bluegrass. I liked the way she uh, reimagined the hashtag black girl magic into black girl banjo magic. I mm. thought that was fantastic. Mm. And the album has a real uh, strong theme of uh, this finding women's history, finding black women's history, uh, rewriting stories to actually centre women in the, those narratives. Yeah, it's a stunning piece of work, actually. Tour de force, musically, lyrically, thematically. 
Um, and I think Rhiannon Giddens, who has really been the driving force behind the album, said that it was a part of a larger movement to reclaim the black female history of the USA. And that involves some really uh, horrifying stories in this album. It takes a very, very close and intimate look at the realities of slavery, the realities of the rape and the unimaginable abuse that women went through, and it is unflinching in the way it deals with those stories and those issues. And yet there is always this sense of resilience and hope throughout the album, which is really quite remarkable. Yes, and joy and dancing and hope in the face of horror. And that's something that we were able to speak to Alison Russell about uh, and her passion for these themes in, and how they relate, in fact, to our present times and the way that we need hope in the face of horror even today. And I think the arc of the album shows that, beginning with a real defiant uh, statement of identity, stories of ancestors, of slavery. The song Barbados is very powerful. It begins with a poem by William Cooper, who was an 18th century English poet who was friends with John Newton, who was a radical abolitionist. And it's a satirical poem describing how white people rely on slavery for their luxuries. And at the end, Rhiannon has created her own modern-day version of that. I own I am shocked at prisoners in the mines and kids sewing clothes for our most famous lines. What I hear of their wages seems slavery indeed. It's enough that I fear it's all rooted in greed. I pity them greatly, but I must be mum, for what about nickel, cobalt, lithium? The garments we wear, the electronics we own, what, give up our tablets, our laptops and phones? Besides, if we do, the prices will soar, and who could afford to pay one dollar more? Sitting here typing, it seems well worth the price, and you there, listening on your favorite device, this bargain we're in, well, it's not quite illicit. So relax, my friend, we're not all complicit. Another powerful song is... Uh, Kashiba, um, written by uh, about her paternal ancestor who was sold into slavery off the coast of Ghana. A powerful song um, with some horrific scenes in it. A harrowing experience of this woman raped and beaten. Um, the lyrics say, every baby taken, starved and sold and sold again. And yet, and yet in the song, it says, of love deserving, ain't it something you survived? Yeah. 
next song I knew I could fly has that real defiance in it as well, where they sing, I carry my scars and yet I won't live in fear. They sing over and over again, I won't live in fear. And very interesting the way in which the album not only looks at the history of slavery and its immediate aftermath, but the reverberations and the impact that that has uh, on US society today. Um, Some of the lyrics um, say, you know, today they say that we are free only to be chained in poverty. So there's this sense of, of really coming to terms with the past the need to, ter- to come to terms with the past. Yes, and it's a Smithsonian project, isn't it? Yes, it is. Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, which is dedicated to supporting cultural diversity and increased understanding among people through preserving, documenting, producing, disseminating uh, sound. So this really fits into um, the sort of thing that they want to they want to do. And who are the other artists on the album? The other artists are Amethyst uh, Kia, uh, Leila McCalla, and of course Alison Russell. So these four women, four um, really fabulous roots uh, musicians and artists uh, collaborating together. And it sounds like it was a real um, passion project for Alison and the other artists. They were able to uh, stay together for 10 or 12 days and she describes the process to us in this interview. involved in another project uh, with the album being released at the end of this month uh, Songs of Our Native Daughters so will you tell us us who the major artists involved in that are and what the album is all about Sure, well it's um, uh, a project that was uh, envisioned and produced by Rhiannon Gibbons and uh, she invited myself and Leila McCalla absolutely fabulous cellist and writer, um, multi-instrumentalist as well, and Amethyst Kia, equally fabulous writer, multi-instrumentalist, to join her for 12 days um, in Lafayette, Louisiana, just outside of Lafayette, Louisiana, in the Bayou country of Louisiana, Mm. uh, down at Dirk Powell's studio there, to basically to explore, um, it, it began with exploring some kind of reclaimed minstrel tunes mm. and slave songs that she had been researching. But she really wanted to have modern women, uh, black women of black heritage um, writers to kind of delve into that material and sort of see what see what came up. And it was a really um, quite brave of her really because yes. um, and, and and we all sort of took a leap of faith in that we did none of the material, the original songs we wrote for the project, you know, we'd all had some ideas jotted down that everything was written in those twelve days. Really? We would be, you know, literally yeah, we would be literally um writing with the exception of Mama's Crying Long, that's a piece that Rhiannon uh, had written previously, mm-hmm. uh, but that, that had not found kind of like a home yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
um, got most of the material, and, and a couple, you know, Amethyst had a couple of verses that were floating around to Blood and Bones, but she, you know, it hadn't, it hadn't kind of fully formed yet. And so we had this kind of amazing experience of living together, working together for 12 days, and it was just a, a kind of a creative explosion for each of us. And there are a, a lot of, um, there are threads within each of our lives. We're all obviously very different musicians and yes. writers with very different backgrounds. Yes. But we do have in common the experience of being, you know, visible minorities yes. within a country that's still really struggling with the legacy of um, racial kind of fear and, yes. and you yes. know, and really a reactionary kind of backlash of hatred that's popped up in the course of the last yes. couple of years, especially. It's become clear that that's not laid to rest, that that legacy of slavery is, is not resting easily by any means, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in in America particularly, yes, and um, and so we were sort of all all kinds of things came up. I mean, we were bonding over, you know, we each had shared certain things that that will happen. All of us are artists who are working more within a kind of a folk or Americana framework, which is, yes. you know, we are not the um, the majority <laughs> within that framework. Yes, and and so we've each experienced. You know, people usually, I think, meaning well and just not realizing, you know, but like being mistaken for another artist of color. Or, right, okay. You know, the assumption, like, oh, well, we've already got one banjo playing oh. black, we don't need another one at this festival. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, that yes. kind of thing. Wow. And you think, oh my goodness, can you imagine if that same, if that same metric were applied to uh, you know, white gentlemen that play guitars. Wow. <laughs> ridiculous. You know? yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, no, we don't need Bob Dylan. We've already got, we've already got Neil Young. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so, you know, it's so absurd when you, when you yes. sort of extrapolate it to something yeah. Um, yeah. that's more commonly accepted. But, uh, you know, so we were, we were, it was a really interesting where we were all kind of, um, Delving into our own histories, connecting with, we did a lot of, of kind of, um, I did a lot of reading leading up to it. I kind of, the, the name of the project, Songs of Our Native Daughters, it's a reference to James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son, which was okay. his first yes. uh, nonfiction book that was published in 1955. Oh, and was I mean, was just a groundbreaking. I mean, this, this was unimaginable in 1955, mm. what he was writing. Mm. And, um, we we really I really I, I'm I'm I mean obviously James Baldwin is is a, a writer and a thinker of vast influence not just in America but internationally. Mm -hmm. um, you know he was he mm. was a sage of our of our times mm. and and of the civil rights era and he bore witness you know to all of the to to you know Martin Luther King and all of the he was really bearing witness and writing about it and translating it and he was so erudite and had this academic approach that was that made it digestible and understandable for people outside of the black community as well yes. um and so we were kind of in rereading that and and we were sort of wanting to have a similar kind of discourse if you will yes. or exploration yes. of of that uncomfortable history within our times um but from a more kind of woman-centered and obviously musical uh, perspective 
Yeah, well, I, I loved the album, Alison. It was really powerful. Um, but I appreciated that um, about hearing women's voices and, and writing women back into history. Um, I thought yes, was, was exactly. really strong yeah. theme. And um, yeah. I listened to Pollyanne's Hammer for the first time while I was walking to work. Uh, in the oh, morning, and yeah. um, I just burst into tears in the street. Like literally, it was so emotional. Just thinking about women's strength and the way that oh. we've been written out of history, and for Black women especially, I know that's yes. especially powerful. So it just moved me so yes. much. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up that song. That's an example of what I'm talking about. So here we're in this process, and we're all kind of bouncing ideas off of each other, and we're all writing madly. Um, you know, the night before, we'd be madly finishing three songs and then recording them the next day. We did, you know, we did. We finished all the recordings in in about ten days, and then just did a few kind of you know harmonies and things like that, mm -hmm. overdubs. Uh, but most of it was done live and in real time, and the the Smithsonian. Uh, videographer was there kind of capturing some of the process and you know it was just mm -hmm. everything happening at once and that morning it was our last day in the studio um, with um, with the, some of the other musicians that were involved uh, Jason Cypher who was playing bass mm -hmm. and Jamie Dick who was playing drums it was our last day with them and we we were doing interviews with Smithsonian as well and Rhiannon was on her way out mm -hmm. the door from our shared Airbnb and she said, oh, you know, it occurred to me, maybe we should write a song from Pollyanne's perspective. <laughs> and it was like, it was like a, a, a bolt from the sky. Had wow. Me. Amethyst was in the middle of doing her interview, and I started madly scribbling lyrics. Oh because I just thought, that's brilliant. She's, she's been there all along, hasn't she? Like in that John <laughs> Henry legends yeah. and songs, there's this tossed off line of, he had this woman, Pollyanne, who, when he was sick, <laughs> you know, picked up a hammer and drove steel like a nun, and you never hear about her again. Yeah. And John Henry dies. He's killed by this backbreaking labor, and and I just started thinking, well, Pollyanne didn't die as usual. You know, the woman did, did the job of the man, got on with raising the yeah. kids, yeah. kept the family together after he died. Yeah. <laughs> so I was sort of envisioning, here's this this hero this heroine that that mm -hmm. has been you know she's she's hiding in plain sight all along she kept the family going I mean somebody had to sing those somebody had to keep the legend going you know and it's Pollyanne you know she yeah. survived she did the work and she helped the kids when Polly had a small baby on her knee on her knee grabbed a There's another strong woman, of course, in the song Kushiba, which is which is really moving as well. And I know that you wrote that. Um, can you tell us a bit about that one? I can. Um, so I I was um, raised. I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, mm -hmm. and I didn't know my biological father growing up. I I had a French foster family for several years, and then I was raised by my mom and uh, and her husband and my mom is of Scottish Canadian descent and um, there's it's a troubled family and mm -hmm. she married a very abusive man and so 
the father who raised me, my my adopted father, was this kind of very abusive, racist character, and um, I, you know, I just I didn't I didn't know what it was to have you know a real father. And then when I was thirty, I got very curious about my other side, you know, because I was always you know one of these things was not like the others. There was always having to explain, yes, that's my mother. <laughs> yes, she's my biological mother. <laughs> Branches of, of the family who weren't particularly accepting of her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, born out of wedlock, brown child. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I ended up, my uncle, my mom's uh, older brother, ended up helping to find my biological father because they'd all been, they'd just been children. They were, you know, they were in high school when she got pregnant. And my, my biological father had been studying in Montreal, mm-hmm. uh, finishing high school in Montreal from Grenada, which, you know, which is a tiny little um, uh, island yes. nation, or three little islands, really, that it's made up of, but very close to Trinidad and Tobago in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he finished his education in Canada, and they'd already broken up, and he'd gone back to Grenada by the time she realized she was pregnant. So right. I never met him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my uncle, it's such a tiny, it's such a tiny community, really. Grenadians, there's only about 350,000 mm-hmm. Grenadians in the whole world. And um, and two-thirds of them are abroad, making livings abroad. So mm-hmm. my uncle had a, a girlfriend in high school who was Grenadian, and he was able to track her down through Facebook. Oh, my goodness. And ask about, ask about my father. And lo and behold, her aunt went to church with my father's sister-in-law. What? <laughs> so, oh. We were able to, within within sort of 24 hours of me saying I'm really interested in, in you know meeting my biological mm-hmm. father, I got a phone call. That's and it incredible. Was my, it, yeah, <laughs> it was, you know, it was quite amazing. And so that was, um, you know, gosh, that's eight years ago now. But um, and we have a, a wonderful relationship now. It, it turned out that um, he he had quite uh, quite an intense early adulthood because he was sort of on the wrong side of the um, the Cold War in which affected Grenada where I, mm-hmm. I don't know I mean it, it a lot of people don't know that history but in 82 Grenada was invaded by the US yes. uh, because they had received money from Fidel Castro to build a, a commercial airport not a mm-hmm. not a military airport but the Cold War was so intense in the early 80s uh, that that was seen as sort of a provocation and Grenada was invaded and mm-hmm. my dad was a you know young idealistic socialist and uh, was was on the wrong side of, of right. that line and so he lost his job his his wife lost her job mm-hmm. and they ended up and I have two two siblings on that side mm-hmm. um, a little sister and a, and a brother and they ended up having to move you know to make a better life for themselves elsewhere and they wound up in Toronto right. Ontario and so that's where I got to meet them when I was 30 years old wow. <laughs> they were in Toronto while I was in Montreal they were only a few hours away for all those years but Goodness. we didn't know um, so so the I'm, I'm sorry I'm rambling on it's no no please story. but um, it's an amazing my, story uh, my my father's eldest sister Denise decided to hire a historian to help her put together mm-hmm. they were able to discover records of Kashiba that had been um, sold off the coast of Ghana mm-hmm. and 
you know, traded hands many times, eventually wound up in Tobago um, and then Grenada and then has the, um, we don't know how many children she had, but we, there's a record of one child, a, mm -hmm. a daughter also named Kashiba, who was actually kidnapped by a plantation owner in Grenada oh and just taken. And she wound up, but she had somehow or other learned midwifery skills. And so she, um, she was able to, to make somewhat of a life for herself uh, that way. Being he, the, the, I guess the owner would sell her to other plantations, would, would sort of rent out her services to other plantations. And, and so this story of this woman, Kashiba, there was an oral kind of thread as well within our family. There was like the mystery of this woman. And then my aunt Denise hired a historian who was able to track down more information about her. And it was so powerful to you know, to learn her name mm -hmm. and a little bit about her story. And um, I just, I I feel so grateful to have that knowledge, you know. And that I'm grateful for her resilience because literally our entire family, this whole, these generations of this huge George Pan, that's the last name of my of my father's people, mm -hmm. wouldn't exist without her, you know. And, and she survived things we can't imagine, you know. And I, I there's so much of the narrative around slavery is, understandably focusing on how horrific it was, which it was, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like taking away a little bit of the, hero the everyday heroism of surviving that, yeah. you know? We don't talk about that. We don't talk about the strength and the resilience and, and, and that that's a gift that gets passed on, yes. you know, to subsequent generations. And that's part of it, too. I mean, and that's not a story unique to... to, to slavery in North America, obviously, mm -hmm. countless, I mean, on my mom's side, you know, the, the, they were, they were Scottish crofters and they were mm -hmm. turfed out by the Lairds mm -hmm. when, when it wasn't, you know, after the clan system fell at Kowatin, basically, and they were, you know, my, my, on my grandma's, you know, on my mom's side, my great grandfather came over, lied about his age, he was 14, you know, or he was 16 and his brother was 14 and they, they lied about their orphans and they were just, you know, basically begging in the street um, in Edinburgh, and they they got on a ship, lied about their ages, and got on the ship and went to wound up in Canada and then in Saskatchewan, which I don't know if you've ever been to Saskatchewan, but no, I can't imagine surviving. I can't imagine surviving the winter there when you're when you're you know a child. Well, I'm glad that you brought up resilience because it was something. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was that's a very strong theme in the album as well, despite all the harrowing stories and and the reality of you know as you say the legacy of slavery even today those themes of resilience yeah. and joy are there as well and I just was it yeah. struck me that Very joy is like a form of resistance yes it is it is a form of resistance and love in a time of war or hatred is a form of resistance and you know it's such a it, necessary message yeah, right like now yes yes I feel it is and you know there's a in 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 uh, this country that I, my adopted country of America, mm -hmm. I, I sort of, I, I'm Canadian, but I, my husband is American, mm -hmm. and you know, I've married into this country. My child is born, has been born here, and um, you know, it's it's a very, very interesting and and intense time here. Yes. Of a lot of a lot of the kind of hidden um, turmoil and pressures have have come to the surface. You know, with this, you know, character in charge. Yes. Mm -hmm 
kind of doing the whole reactionary fear-mongering us and them nonsense that Mm -hmm. that tries to divide people you know and um and so I feel like it's really I feel like we could it wasn't like an intentional reaction to that but but you can't help but kind of dig in all that we all that we know how to do is write songs you know and, and commune with people but that more and more I'm realizing it's so important there's so few avenues left where people with differing political views or, mm-hmm. or religious views or, you know, social views or socioeconomic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds mm-hmm. can get together in a room and mm-hmm. be decent to each other. And music is, is one of the, live music is one of the few um, avenues where that That's still true. happens. Yes. You know, where, and, 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 it can, and it does, it can change people's ideas about things and it can lessen their fear and it can make them feel more connected and when you feel connected and empathetic then you're not going to lock children up at the border you know you're just not yes. going to do it so yes it's it's you know we, we we don't know how to cure cancer but singing songs and writing songs that hopefully people can connect to and with and feel our common humanity that's not nothing that's something i cling to you know? yeah um it, it certainly uh, felt to to this non-american like a very important album to make right at this particular point in time in uh, in history with all this going on Alison. yeah no it felt i mean we all felt a kind of an urgency i think as we were i mean aside from we were under the clock time-wise we only had 12 days together but there was a feeling of urgency of like we have to respond to some of the poison in the atmosphere here you yes. know we have to just dig in on on the beauty and the connection. You know, another theme uh, in the album that really emerged, I, I, I noticed, was this idea that the separation based on, on a superficial visual uh, trigger, like someone has dark skin, someone has pale skin, is, yes. is so false. And, yes. and, you know, you delve, you just scratch the surface of Amer- Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of the founding fathers. He had an entire black family. Yes. And, they, and his and the and the black mistress, by all accounts, by most historians' views, was probably the half sister of his white wife. I mean, it just goes on and on. Mm. And he ended up emancipating the children from that union uh, later, and and eventually, finally, um, Sally, his his, you know, well, if, if someone can be called a mistress when they're an enslaved person, yes, but his, uh, the the black mother. But, you know, th- this is at the heart of, of America, and, mm. and nobody talks about it. It's not separate. It's the same family. Mm. One side had darker skin, one yes. side had paler skin, yes. one side was exploiting the other. But it's the same family. Yes. It's not a different family. It's one big dysfunctional family, yes. you know. Yes. But and it, but and it, that is something that gets really hidden and glossed mm. over too often. You know, Hamilton, I mean, that was that's I was so thrilled when the Hamilton musical came out because... You know, finally someone's talking about this is a person, this is a mixed race person. This yes. is not a white person, you know, yes. not a white person. So, yeah, 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 very good. Um, yeah. So, tell us about the um, when you were making the album, uh, Alison, and you were collaborating, uh, the four of you together. How did you decide on what who was going to sing on what songs and um, what the arrangements were going to be? You know, it all kind of happened very organically. I, I'd say that. Um, the obvious, the obvious delineations of leads were if you wrote the song generally you sang it. Yeah. Um, but for the co-writes, we um, on a couple of them were sort of trading verses or 
in the case of like Blood and Bones, that was just so clearly Amethyst had that chorus, and that mm. was so clearly like I just wanted to hear her voice on that song. Yeah, <laughs> you know, strong and in the center. I we co-wrote it, but it was like just very clear to me that she should be the one okay. to sing it. And it ended up it ended up kind of um, it was just very natural the way we it wasn't sort of a an orchestrated okay now using this and helping yes. that it just kind of happened naturally as we as we were and and very um organically as we just sort of worked on things sometimes and then it would feel really good one way and less good the other so we do it the way that felt really good yeah but of course you, you were you were you were four very talented uh, musicians and artists and, and one thing i noticed is the the banjo features quite a bit in the album um uh, and i think all, oh, yes. all four of you are banjo players yes yes we are and, and we all play different banjos which is amazing actually um it was and that was that was all Vianne, and she, one of the things that she wanted to do was really feature the banjo. Okay. And, and part of that was goes back to the kind of, there is um, an unfortunate kind of tokenism that sometimes happens or a novelty, like, oh, it's a, a black girl playing the banjo. Okay. How sweet. That's sort of a little novelty thing. But it's, it's a deeply um, sort of American instrument which could not have existed without Africans, you know, being yes. brought to this, this land. Yes. And, and so it's a unique union between African and European immigrants and, and or enslaved uh, tradition. And it's this beautiful, it rises above, it's sort of tapping into that idea of joy and resilience and beauty coming out of horrific things. Yes. And the banjo is a shining example of that. And so it felt like... Uh, it's it, it really sort of powerful and emblematic to yes. all of us, and we've all used it a lot. Um, it's my instrument it's it's that I primarily write on. I am by far the poorest banjoist, oh, <laughs> the no. banjoist of the group, but I write I write a lot on the band. But do you know what I mean? I'm not the technical. I'm not the okay. shredder. <laughs> you know, okay. That um, amethyst can amethyst can rip a beautiful solo. Okay. And, you know, I'm I'll, I'm more of a rhythm and textural and uh, a player, and I, I write I, I I use it for writing predominantly. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I'm more of like a songwriter who also happens to play the banjo okay. and write songs on the banjo. And what was so fascinating to me was that all I loved the way our banjo voices all sounded together because they're all quite different. Rihanna plays this incredible. Um, um, minstrel banjo from the 1800s which is like a fretless wow. gut string banjo with a very deep voice um, Amethyst plays a steel string uh, five string smaller sort of like sharper voiced banjo which is yes. gorgeous Layla plays a tenor which has a totally different tenor four string tenor banjo which you know has totally different voicing and sound and then I play um, a kind of a hybrid um 
uh, sort of a open G um, kind of claw hammer style banjo, but I, I converted mine to be closer to a gut string, like it's, it's called okay. Nile gut, it's sort of fake gut okay. strings to, so that it won't be as affected by temperature and altitudes and things. But, and, and it has a kind of a, um, like a fiber skin, like a, as close to a, a synthetic skin that's as close to like the original goat skin of like an aquanting or something yes. that you can get. Yes. And so they, all these, these four bands have such different voices. And so it was really lovely. There were um, a couple of pieces where we were all playing the banjo at the same time and it was lovely it just I, I there's something about the harmonics of it and the it just i don't know we all felt like the spirits were gathering or something it was it was really affecting and uh, beautiful fabulous who, who knew there were so many types of banjos um that's fantastic oh there's so many it's there yeah. there's so many um and we, we we detected your um your uh clarinet coming through a time or two as well Yes, yeah, I was the, the one uh, woodwind <laughs> player in the group, and they let me tune the clarinet on a couple of times. Yeah, we, we, like, we like the clarinet, and uh, it's lovely to hear it uh, coming in now and again. Oh. So, uh, oh, I'm so glad. I love, I love the clarinet. That's by far, you know, if I'm at a jam session or something, that's my, that's my axe to jam on. Oh, really? And I, I just love the clarinet. Mm. Yeah, it's like an extension of... To me, it feels like an extension of voice. You know, mm. there's just something about it that I just, I just love it. I always have loved the sound of it. And I didn't come to it. To, I didn't come to playing instruments until later in my early twenties. Really? Um, I was sort of, uh, yeah, I was sort of uh, trapped in what I call the singer's ghetto before that, where people say, "Oh, you're a musician." And you say, "Yes, I sing," and they're like, "Oh, you're a singer. Okay, <laughs> you're not a musician. You're a singer." <laughs> so I decided I've got to get out of the singer's ghetto. I've got to learn some instruments, and so I started actually with guitar, which I don't even really play anymore. Okay. And then found the clarinet, and then found the banjo. Wow, fabulous. Um, now, Songs of Our Native Daughters is um, uh, on the Smithsonian Folkways um, label. Yes. Um, why did you decide to record the album on that label? Well, you know, that was already in place oh, was it? Uh, before uh, before uh, Rhiannon invited. I mean, that was part of, she was able to invite us all to do it because the Smithsonian, you know, very generously supported and funded the project for oh, us to fabulous. get to do that. Yeah, and I think that she, I think it was very important for her to have it be involved with the Smithsonian because so much of the source material um, that she has d uh, researched and delved into has come from the Smithsonian archives. I know that she has a deep. Uh, yes. We all have an appreciation, but she yes. has. Rhiannon's like a musicologist. You know, mm. she's she's really gone in deep with the archival material yes. in a way that, like I have, you know, I've just scratched the surface, and in fact mostly everything that I've learned about early American and African-American music has come from Rhiannon, so right. um, teaching me about it, you know. So she has really gone in deep um, with the archives and the research and piecing things together, and the inspiration for um, this project was actually, for, you know, she was walking through the new um, uh, Museum of African-American um, history and culture and heritage that the Smithsonian has been a huge part of putting together. And she was struck by a quotation um, of William Calp of Calpers, which was a kind of a satirical poem about uh, the slave trade. He was a great abolitionist, of course, and was horrified by the slave trade and was doing everything he yes. could to get it banned. But uh, 
she was so struck by this poem and how it correlated, you know, to our modern times and, and the kind of hidden um, slavery, basically, that occurs off our shores, you know, of, of people in factories and, you know, Sri Lanka somewhere being paid nothing and having the factory collapse on their heads so that we can actually close, you know, or, or cheap watches or phones or whatever it is. Yes. And, you know, she was really drawing that line from the past to the present to that just kind of got the whole, the idea percolating to do something um, like Songs of Our Native Daughters. And then, and then, and then the Smithsonian, you know, she wrote them a proposal okay. and they got on board. Uh, okay. Which is so wonderful. Yeah. That they're, that they've really seemed to have, um, they recently just released Kaya Cater's new record as well, Grenades, which is just stunning. Oh. And um, I think they're really making a point of not just having the archival uh source material and recordings they really want to support modern artists oh that's very good know, who are continuing yeah. these traditions yes. and i think it's so wonderful because very few places are left that 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 do that you know that yes. support um up-and-coming up writers yes <laughs> so it's, yes it's pretty wonderful we're very very grateful to them so yeah uh, so they've really made a point you know of 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 uh trying to support the 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 younger voices that have grown out of the traditions that they have preserved so beautifully. So have you any plans to tour this album, Alison? Well, we, it's funny. Rihanna and I were, we were just talking about that this morning. We're, yeah. um, she, we were talking about how tricky it is because, of course, everybody's juggling their individual projects as well. Yes. Uh, but we want to. We all very much want to. We did a kind of a little pre preview of uh, Songs of Our Native Daughters. Rhiannon had a residency uh, at Symphony Space in New York City for uh, four weeks, and we did two shows uh, where we where we kind of previewed a lot of the material, and it was so much fun, and it was so well received. Um, you know, beautiful sold out 800 seat venue. And yes. People were gave us such great feedback about it, and, um, and there's been such a lovely uh, response. Um, you know, from from journalists and, and yes. wonderful music sites like yours. Uh, so we, we do want to, we all want to do yeah. some sort of touring around it. It's just going to be tricky to figure out the timing. Yes, but yes. certainly this summer, I think we'll be doing some festivals together. Yeah. Um, and and we're trying to figure out a time, you know, perhaps in the fall to to do a little run. But yeah. I know we, um, we definitely, definitely want to. It, yeah. It's just going to be a matter of trying to juggle all the schedules. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, no, you definitely need to do that because it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic album. It's wonderful. Um, the music's great and, of course, the, the themes are so very important. Um, so you definitely got to do that. Um, I know you're touring hard with the Birds of Chicago. You have been, uh, Alison. But you've another project coming up in March uh, playing a number of venues with Luther Dickinson and Amy Helm. Um, now, that is, yes. um, that is some lineup. Um, that's a show that I would definitely so love to see. <clears throat> but your your uh, Birds of Chicago uh, album, Love and Wartime, has has is a fantastic album and has gone down really, really well. You must be delighted with the way that's been received. Oh, we we're thrilled about it. We feel so grateful, um, and it's been it's just been such uh, an inspiring, you know, year. Well, we'll be coming up on a year since it was released um, yeah. at the end of May, and uh, it. It's just been such an inspiring year of getting to connect with people all yeah. over the, you know, we've been 
we've been, we came, we came to Ireland with it, we went to Scotland and England and the Netherlands, and mm. a little bit in Germany and Canada, of course, in the U.S. And um, it, we've just been having, it, it's been really lovely and we're so grateful, you know, for, for people listening and, and, uh, and coming out to support the show. And yeah. Such. It's, you know, we definitely don't take that for granted and we're so grateful for it. Yeah. And, and so um, Luther and Amy have become like family to us, like um, Luther and his wife and their daughters are, are are here in Nashville now as well, and we've re- relocated yeah. here within the last year, and our little girls have a band together. <laughs> they, Fantastic. They all love each other, and they go to the same school, and it's just become, wow. you know, it's it's become quite a family affair. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it's and Amy as well. Amy, you know, it's funny because we, that record that uh, that we're supporting with that tour in March, um, it's coming out on New West on March 22nd, okay. of the Strawberry Moon. But we actually recorded it three years ago. Oh, really? And and I just sort of, yeah. And I just thought, and that's how we really got to meet, got to know Luther and got to know Amy. And, you know, we spent Thanksgiving with Amy and her family the last few years. Like, we've become, it, it, all of these projects have, have wow. grown out of it. And, and JT and Amy have started writing a lot together. And, Gosh. you know, I... Luther is, I mean, we, we, all of this kind of um, happy collaboration and deep friendship has ensued, but we all sort of thought, oh, I guess New West has shelved it, you know, they're just not going to come out. But then, lo and behold, they're, they're releasing it oh, in wow. March, so we were all so pleased to have an excuse to tour together, you know. Oh, well, we'll, go, we're, we'll look forward to that. Um, uh, Alison, thank you so much for being so open with us. Yes, thank you. It's been lovely oh, to talk pleasure. to you, Alison. So, it's been such a pleasure speaking to both of you, and thank you for actually listening to the record, you know, and not, not saying, how would you describe your music? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much. Well, we loved it, so there was no, it was wonderful to hear, so thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. All it right. was just a joy speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us at Blues at the Crossroads, a podcast about blues, Americana and culture. Special thanks this week to Alison Russell for her time and tremendous insight. Her collaborative album, Songs of Our Native Daughters, is out now. Blues at the Crossroads is hosted by Gary Burnett and produced and co-hosted by me, Gemma Burnett. You can see more reviews and articles on the blog downatthecrossroads.wordpress.com and follow us on Twitter at Blues and Faith. Next time we will be interviewing the Lovell sisters who formed the band Larkin Poe, so subscribe to the podcast. See you next time. Ooh.